the things that I have done in the last few weeks and started with in the first week was to try to relate the forces that were at work both socially and religiously in the Roman Empire during these first four centuries uh, and to show how religion and society were intimately linked in a way that has been true in most civilizations, but not 21st century America. Uh, we tend, those of us in this audience, less so than a much younger audience, we remember when the Christianity and the large society had a relatively comfortable relationship. Uh, now, of course, we'll see uh, that the stresses that occurred in the Roman Empire as we approach the dreaded third century are going to have a very negative impact on the relationship between the emerging Christian minority, and it's very much a minority at this point. It's a small, small percentage of the population. Uh, we'll go forward with this and we'll see that we're in for some very rocky times now. Let's back up to the page, beginning of page eight, is it eight, nine? Nine? Ten. Nine. Uh, for those of you that don't have So let's just go back to Decius. Decius uh, reigned from 249 to 251. And um, he was the man, the emperor, who created the infamous libellus, L-I-B-E-L-L-U-S. And as it says in your handout, uh, you were required to pour a libation to the emperor and you had to eat meat that had been previously sacrificed to the pagan gods. And you had to swear that you always had done these things. In other words, you had to completely renounce your past religious life, if you were a Christian or a converted Jew, and a lot of the Christians were from the Jewish faith originally in this early area. And uh, this was a, a, a decree that was empire-wide. That's what sets Decius apart. He's the first of the emperors who now take the power of 
the central government and try to impose a standard that will be equal throughout the empire. Up until now, most of the relationships between church and state have been very much localized, different parts of the empire. Remember, the empire is colossal, and transportation, although much better than any other empire ever, is still very, very slow. So there's a lot of independence. Several people were executed under Decius, uh, the uh, Pope Fabianus, uh, and uh, there were various deportations and executions. Uh, but the numbers were really rather small. We don't know exactly how small, but we know that uh, early church historians commented on this, but not with the same sense of horror that they would some of the later persecutions. Uh, one of the issues that, uh, that occurred as he only reigned for two years was what did you do after uh, Decius died if you had had a moment of weakness and you had renounced your faith? But now that the persecution was, formal persecution was over, you wanted to come back to the church. And this set up a big problem for the church. Some churches said, yes, you can come back. Some said, no, you can't come back. Uh, it was a problem that was particularly acute in North Africa. Now, if you'll go down the page to Roman numeral five, this is where everything changes. And it's known in the study of the Roman Empire as the crisis of the third century. Those of you that have the list of the emperors, if you will go to page two, and if you have a pen, um, you will go down and you will see about halfway down the page an emperor by the name of Alexander Severus. Make a little notation there. And if you will go further down the page, you will see an emperor by the name of Aurelian, and make a little notation there. And then finally, just above the bottom of the page, you'll see an emperor by the name of Diocletian. Okay. The reason I point this out is that depending on how you number it, in this period from 235 to 284 AD, there were anywhere from 22 to 26 emperors. That's an astonishing indication of instability. And it reflects the instability. And indeed, the Roman Empire had never been as threatened as it was during this period of the third century. What was going on? Well, it was a perfect storm of all kinds of things. Uh, some of them were military. Tremendous pressure coming in from Germany and the Germans trying to get into the empire. Tremendous pressure coming from what was the successor to the Persian Empire, or today's Iran, all sound familiar? Tremendous pressures uh, and many military defeats, particularly in Germany. Uh, but other problems were uh, environmental. 
So we're looking at a period about 1,600 years ago, 1,800 years ago. Climate change was a huge problem back then. I'm serious. There had been a tremendous warming period, so much so that sea levels started rising rapidly, which forced people out of the, the lowlands around the Baltic Sea, the Netherlands, Germany, uh, all of that area, and people were underwater, and they were forced to move south, coupled with drought throughout many portions of the empire, particularly Egypt and North Africa. So now there was famine in many parts of the empire, not all parts, big empire. Spain was going gangbusters during the third century. It was a great place to be. Gaul was troubled, North Africa was troubled. Uh, then on top of that, plague. Several different kinds of plague ripped through the empire in this 50 to 60 year period. Probably the Black Death, but also smallpox. We forget that smallpox was just as deadly as the Black Death. So, um, and then finally there was a, a problem that the empire had been kicking down the can for a couple of centuries. And finally, it couldn't be kicked down the can. And that is, how do you decide who's going to be the next emperor? There were no fixed rules for succession. It wasn't like the British monarchy, where over time, this has all been very carefully played out, and a lot of people have lost their heads, but they finally have arrived at a system where you know precisely who the next king or queen will be. They didn't have that. So the empire is under tremendous stress. Revenue is declining. Volunteers for the army are declining. The whole population is declining. Cities are being abandoned. Villages are being abandoned. If you don't have peasants, who works the farms? Same thing we saw in the Middle Ages, in the 14th century, a thousand years later, same exact problem. Uh, and it became so stressed out that what happened was, starting with, there was a, the first of the emperors I wanted to outline for you was this fellow by the name of Alexander Severus who was a particularly clever, bright, intelligent emperor, and he was very sympathetic to Christianity. He had a tremendous amount of success focusing on pushing the Persians back. Then he turned his attention to where things were really bad, which was up in Germany and Gaul, modern-day eastern France. And he went up there, and he took a look at the state of his army, and he took a look at the state of the German army, and he said, we, sh we really shouldn't fight. What we should do is buy them off. Well, the troops, who would not get any loot if they were Germans were bought off and who had been humiliated by the Germans, 
in recent history, said, we'll have none of that, and they assassinated him. And they named their own successor. This is the first of what were called barracks emperors. You see, the, the army was largely filled with non-Romans. It used to be, back in the day, that the Praetorian Guard, who guarded the emperor in Rome, could choose emperors. But the Praetorian Guard was silenced. They, they were sidelined now. Because by this time, the empire had split into three parts. You had Gaul, France, Germany, Spain, and Britain. Then you had the Eastern Empire all through Turkey and uh, Northern Africa, which was a, that's where most of the grain came from, was North Africa. We look at North Africa now and we see it as a desert, but it wasn't the desert that we know now. It was very, very productive. It was the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Uh, and then the rest of the empire, well, that would be um, Italy, part of North Africa, um, Sicily. Um, so you had three different emperors. Well, on top of this, we, we now had two different apocalyptic visions in the empire as things got worse and worse and worse. There was a, there was a legend, a myth, among the pagans that some great powerful figure would emerge from the east, not specifically where they would come from, who would lead to the conquest of the west. Those of you that have read Lord of the Rings, where does the evil come from? The east. What is going to fall? if Frodo doesn't succeed, the West. Tolkien was a historian. He copped that theme directly from this second century into third century fear that the Romans had. But there was another apocalyptic version, a vision that was beginning to work its way into society. Anybody guess what it was? the second coming of Christ. So people looked at the mayhem in this empire, the greatest of all empires, and everybody was terrified. The result was, as the political chaos spread, people were looking for some center of stability, and they couldn't find it in the emperors. And it resulted in a de facto alliance between two seemingly impossible allies. The Senate, which had been largely, largely marginalized and represented the aristocracy. Stability, old families, no peasants suddenly emerging as emperors because the troops said, you're the emperor and the common Roman people. 
one would never have thought, because historically they were like this. But they were united against the chaos in the military, the political chaos. They were also blaming who for the chaos? They were blaming the Christians. The Christians had gradually worked their way into society, not just horizontally, that is geographically, but vertically. And now members of the upper classes, indeed the senatorial classes, were sometimes closet Christians. Well, in the middle of all of this, an emperor emerges by the name of Valerian, and he has a longer reign than most people would. He goes from 253 to 260, and he rules, the last part of his uh, rule is with his son, Gallienus. And Gallienus um, takes the Western Empire and Valerian takes the Eastern Empire, which is by far the more important half of the empire by now. Well, Valerian is no fan of Christianity. And his rule is based on success militarily, and he has a fair amount of success. Uh, but he decides that Christians must be suppressed, that the problem is that Christ, the gods are angry, and they're angry because the Christians don't worship the right gods. So you can see some of the edicts that he uh, promulgates. Uh, clergy, all clergy must sacrifice to the gods, not just their god. Uh, there was a purging of the upper classes of all Christians. Uh, the imperial household, which had a lot of Christians in it, in the form of converted slaves, was cleansed. They were a contaminant. Any Christian who had any form of political power or military power was removed from office. If you were warned and you were a senator or an aristocrat to stop your Christian religion and you continued to practice and someone turned you in, you face death. And to prove the point, there was a very popular senator by the name of Asturias. And Asturias, though, was one of those folks, um, kind of like some modern politicians, who couldn't resist twisting the knife. And he went to a festival, a famous pagan festival, in where? Caesarea Philippi. Does that ring a bell? Where does Peter confess? You are the Christ, the Son of God. Caesarea Philippi. So this is the heart of pagan territory. And the reason it's the heart of pagan territory is there's a huge cave complex up there, which was thought to be the birthplace of the god Pan, the god of nature. Well, nature isn't cooperating, is it? No, we've got plagues, we've got droughts, we've got famine, we've got everything. Rising seas. So uh, he goes up there to attend the festival, nominally, because he's 
a senator. But he can't resist taunting the pagan worshipers about how impotent their god is. Look at all this stuff going on. You call Pan a god of nature. People did not take it well. So uh, he's brought to trial and he's executed. His two daughters, who are also Christians, are executed. And his wife is also executed. This sends a very powerful message because he was not just a senator. He was a power broker. The great insight that Decius had had, Valerian now builds on, and that is that Christianity has gotten to be so big at this point that it's not just an individual quirk, but it's got a hierarchy. And how do you attack the church? You go after the hierarchy. You go after the clergy, you go after the popes, you take apart churches, you do whatever you can to break the structure. So <clears throat> they closed a lot of churches, they tore many of them down, some were converted into temples. Um, and this one really hit hard. Um, Christians by this point had their own burial grounds. They were seized by the state. Uh, People were exiled, some were executed. Cyprian of Carthage, uh, the bishop there, which was a huge city in the heart of the grain belt in northern Africa, big city. Uh, Dionysius was bishop of Alexandria, the second biggest city in the empire after Rome. Also the center of Christian education, one of the centers. Uh, they are executed. And in the case of uh, Cyprian, we have a transcript of the trial. And it's the shortest trial in history, in the history of the Roman Empire. And the Romans were big on law. Our legal system's based on their legal system as much as anything. So the consul, or rather the uh, procurator who is conducting this trial, says to Cyprian, Episcopus S, which is, are you a bishop? And Cyprian says, some, I am. And the procurator says, fuisti, that is, you were. And then they take him out and execute him. Uh, but the execution is an interesting one because they tie him to a stake to burn him. They light the fire. He doesn't catch fire. All right, back to the drawing board. They rearrange the fire. They pour more oil on it. They light the fire. Doesn't touch him. Well, the Romans are nothing if not pragmatists, so they stab him to death. <laughs> So thus goes Bishop Cyprian. Now, fortunately, Valerian dies. And he's succeeded by his son, Gallienus, who now inherits the whole shebang. Um, and everybody is expecting 
something really terrible to happen. But miraculously, Gallienus rescinds all the restrictions, restores all the property, etc. He turns out to be a friend of Christianity. As for Valerian, well, this is why I love teaching history. What happened to Valerian? Well, he didn't really die. Well, I mean, we know he died. But the mystery is how he died. He goes east to fight um, the Scythians, the Persians. And he comes up against uh, an emperor of their empire by the name of Shapur. And Shapur captures Valerian. Only time it ever happened. This is where it gets really interesting. Everybody starts wondering, well, what exactly, and we know he was captured alive, not dead, obviously. But nobody knows exactly how he died. The Persians insisted that Valerian uh, was made to be a personal servant to Shapur, the man that defeated him. And indeed, there are uh, pictures on walls and so on and so forth of Valerian on his hands and knees with Shapur using him as a mounting stone to get on his horse. So that every time he got on his horse, he stepped on the Roman emperor. Others say, uh, no, they became really good friends. The third story is the most interesting, and that is they killed him, skinned him, stuffed him. We've all seen the Roman emperor, uh, Roman legions, you know, with their symbols and so on marching into war, uh, that the Persians used the emperor Valerian as their symbol when they marched into war. But Gallienus makes things right. And um, there's about 40 years now of relative peace. Then we finally get the empire reunited under Aurelian. And then we get Diocletian. Diocletian is one of the most brilliant competent emperors. They haven't had one like this in 150 years or 100 years, not since uh, uh, Marcus Aurelius. He's brilliant, and he's a master of organization. And he's decided that what he's going to do is solve the problem of succession. He realizes that the empire has gotten too big. And so what he decides to do is split the empire in half. Not de facto, but legally split it in half. It had gone into thirds, but that was a question of military centrifugal forces. Now he's going to have a Western empire and an Eastern empire. He establishes the Eastern Empire capital, not in Constantinople, but in a town in northern 
um, Turkey called Nicomedia. And in the West, the empire is moved administratively from Rome to Ravenna, which is at the top of the Adriatic Sea. It's more central for communication and for getting troops moved around into the perennial hotspots, which are always the German border and always the Eastern border. So this shifts everything eastward. Um, now, during this time of relative peace that precedes Diocletian's succession, there are some winds of change blowing through the pagan religious community. And the concept, if you go back to the first week that we started this, we talked about the fact that there was sort of a yearning among the Greco-Roman philosophers, an intuition that there had to be a supreme God. There had to be one God who was higher than all the other gods, just like there had to be an emperor who was higher than every other person in the empire. And they began to focus in on Sol Invictus, the invincible sun. So, the soil is being prepared for the concept, not just of henotheism, which is there are many gods, but there's one who's above all, but for monotheism, which says there are no other gods, not just the highest god among many, but there's only one god, period. So that's where we're moving. The Christians, of course, have that concept, but the pagans don't, and they are, but they're gradually beginning to drift in that direction. And a lot of this is driven by the military. The military now comes from such a potpourri, potpourri of various areas in the empire that the concept of having a god who unifies them all when they march into battle is extremely appealing to the soldiers. All right, so Diocletian comes to the throne, um, and uh, he is a devotee of the concept of a hierarchy of the gods with a highest god. There are various con con candidates. I've mentioned Sol Invictus. There's also Mithras, which is a, uh, a uh, mystery religion that comes from the East. There's also um, uh, I'll get it. Uh, Sibel. Sibel also comes from the East. That features an interesting inaugural uh, ceremony, initiation ceremony for the priests of Sibel. And that is that they have to publicly castrate themselves and throw their genitals into the cheering crowds you can see that there aren't an awful lot of volunteers for this particular religion. Um, so, he, um, Diocletian, reintroduces the major pagan gods, but in one particular, the one he's gonna emphasize is Jupiter uh, Conservator Augusti. What does that mean? That means Jupiter who guards the emperor. That's the number one god. 
which reinforces the idea that the purpose of religion is to maintain political stability. Uh, and so in um, 293, he develops a system called the Tetrarchy. And the idea here is that there will be a senior Augustus who can be either in the East or West. He will appoint the other Augustus, who will be somebody who's younger, but an ally. Then each one of the Augusti will appoint a Caesar, who's his right-hand man, who will automatically succeed to the Augustus position when someone dies. So it's an attempt to have the ability to have flexibility in terms of talent and loyalty, but also uh, can you know who's going to ascend to the supreme position. And it also has the beauty of being able to allot power alternately or potentially alternately from east to west, because the senior Augustus uh, may turn out to be somebody younger if the older one dies at a very suddenly after accession. So you, you get this, this balance between east and west and between generations or succession. Um, now, this all sounds great, but uh, there are other things that Diocletian has in mind. He, in 297, now says, okay, public sacrifice to the gods is mandatory for every Roman citizen. Well, in 217, everybody living inside the empire was automatically granted citizenship. Not a good idea. It devalued the concept of Roman citizenship. It devalued cohesion, but it was a political move done in 217. Uh, and so soldiers had to sacrifice to the gods publicly. Now, there were Christians in the military. Um, the concept here was that he was going to rid the army, now that he'd finally gotten things kind of stabilized, he was going to go back to the template that had made Rome great. We have the major gods, you must acknowledge those, you must worship in the ways that our ancestors did. Remember that, that phrase, mos maiorum, that the majority of our ancestors knew what was best? He wants to go into the Wayback Machine and restore stability and restore the frayed relationship between the hierarchy of the gods and the political hierarchy. Um, and any of the people who were in positions of power um, would be deprived of any legal defense. Now, this is a terrible change in Roman law. You can't even defend yourself. You have to defend yourself personally. You can't have a lawyer. Meanwhile, he's destroying churches. They're seizing copies of the Bible's circulated writings. They're burning them publicly, and so on and so forth. So Diocletian is determined, and he's got the wherewithal um, 
and the organization to really make things very bad. Um, in the eastern capital, which is where he sets up shop, they round up all the priests and deacons and execute them. Uh, by 304, this dictate that everybody must worship publicly has now finally spread throughout the entire empire. But, despite his fabulous organization, it's still not universal. It's very bad in Egypt, it's very bad in the East, but it's largely ignored in the West. And one of the reasons it's, it's largely ignored in the West is that Galerius, who is um, the son, or rather succeeds to be the emperor when Diocletian, Diocletian doesn't die, he retires. He's one of the few emperors who doesn't die in office. Um, he continues the persecution in the East, but in the West, the successors there do not. So the West, ironically, now becomes a refuge for people from the East. What are some of the things that, uh, that annoyed people about the Christians? Well, we've talked about some of these. They're atheisms. They enjoyed attacking pagan statues. Have you ever noticed that most of the gods and goddesses, the statues that you see in museums don't have their nose? Did you ever wonder why that was? They were mutilated by Christians. And the idea, now imagine if you are a pagan. And uh, we, we saw this with St. Martin. He'd, he'd go into a town and he'd start mocking the gods and whacking the gods with a stick and nothing happened. And so, of course, that humiliated the pagans. Uh, they were considered to be, of course, moral reprobates. We know that. They refused to appear in the arena. They opposed abortion. And even more importantly, they protected children of both sexes. Putting out unwanted female newborns is a worldwide practice. And until very recently, it was practiced in rural China and India. The Christians didn't care who the babies were and who gave birth to them. They rescued them. They also opposed the sale of children. We talked about the patria potentas, the fact that the head of the family unit, the extended family unit, had all power. Well, it's a little bit reduced by now. Uh, but the sale of children was fairly common and you could turn a profit on it. And uh, 
That custom extended into 18th century Britain. Children would be sold. They also humiliated the pagans because their charity, their hospitals, which they built, were open to all. So on the one hand, they're being called barbarians and, and uh, promoters of incest and, and this, that, and everything else. But on the other hand, they're setting up a social model which is so glaringly superior to the current pagan model. What happens when you, you you've seen this in life? If you're the smartest kid in the class, there are going to be a certain number of people that don't like you. Right? We know that. We know that good can inspire either emulation or retaliation. Now, in response to these assaults, Galerius, who is now in the east, after having cleansed the capital of all Christian hierarchy, having slaughtered them, he is being pressed. He doesn't need more problems. He issues an edict of toleration, and that edict is in 310. Uh, at this point, the prosecution and persecution of Christians has been going on for 250 years. There are enough Christians to begin to start swaying public opinion. Plus, there's a certain apathy among the pagans. It just doesn't, they, you know, they've seen this act so many times before, and now they're getting pushback. Um, people are not turning Christians in. Uh, they're not paddling on them. They're not accusing them. It's, it's becoming much more comfortable to be a Christian, not without local potential problems, but the possibility of leading a normal life now exists. Um, this brings us to the last act. And I'm going to preserve the last act until next week because it's the one you've all been waiting for. Constantine the Great. Um, but I'm going to, uh, I, has anybody here ever heard of a, a saint by the name of Perpetua? They're usually coupled, a Perpetua and Felicity. No? This, it's a feast day in our church and in the Roman Catholic day, and the feast day is, the, um, is March the 7th. This is a really interesting story. This takes place in uh, Carthage where uh, the bishop uh, had his demise. Same time. Perpetua is an upper-class woman uh, who's a devout Christian, and um, she's arrested along with her infant son and her slave, whose name is Felicita, Felicity, who's pregnant. And there are four other members of her household and friends 
males that are also arrested. And uh, Felicity and uh, one of the men are slaves. The others are free Roman citizens. And this is when it meant something to be a Roman citizen because remember, this is 203. The devaluation of Roman citizenship is 217. And uh, they are brought before the governor and they, they refuse to renounce their faith. They're kept in prison, they're working on them, they're working on them, trying to convince them because this is a woman who's known she has social connections. And this is a great prize. If they can get her to renounce her faith, this is wonderful. But she absolutely steadfastly refuses. Uh, so eventually, they, one of them dies in prison, but not perpetual felicity. And um, they take them into the arena. Now, this is one of the few times that we haven't actually documented to the arena. And um, they dress them up in animal skins and set the, the dogs and the lions and everything else on them. Uh, I'd like to be able to tell you that the kids were fine, but I don't know. Because while in prison, uh, Felicity gives birth to her child. This is one of the well-documented horror stories. But again, it occurred under a localized governor who was trying to prove a point. Um, so there's no doubt that Christians went into the arena. But when they say that the Christians refused the arena, what they really are saying is, I mean, if the governor wanted to throw you in the arena, you're going. He's not asking your permission. What it meant was that they didn't attend the games. How many of you are Clemson fans? That's all right. Put your hands up. I know there's some closet kit. And how many of you are Gamecock fans? Wait a minute. You can't have it both ways. <laughs> well, why is this important? Because it was at the games, in particular, the chariot races. There were four colors for the chariots, white, red, blue, and green. Everybody was a fan, a fanatical fan of one or the other. And so if you wouldn't go to the arena, whether they were slaying animals or they were slaying people, or they were having chariot races or whatever at the Hippodrome, you were antisocial. And that was considered to be another slap in the face at the larger Roman society. All of these things sound crazy, but they're not crazy they were the mechanisms to hold a society together. What mechanisms do we have left? Think about it. What do we have left? Anyway, so next week, Constantine will strut his stuff. And, uh, oh, by the way, something, little aside. Um, 
Philip the Arabian was the first, he was one of those barracks governors. Philip the Arabian was the first to, in effect, confess that he was a Christian, not Constantine. And how do we know this? Because he's the first emperor who had a personal confession and absolution. And we have a record of it. What was he confessing to? Having assassinated Gordian III, whose office he took. That was the sin he confessed. But interestingly enough, it was a private confession, but it established the fact that the bishop or the pontiff who absolved him was higher in authority than the emperor. And that's going to come back to haunt us in the Middle Ages. Who is at the top of the power structure? Holy Roman Emperor? Henry VIII? Or the Pope? Well, the seed is planted with the private confession of Philip the Arab. Thank you.